how you see the world hugely impacts your experience of it. Take this steak, for example. So, is this a delicious part of a delicious meal? Or is this a piece of flesh sundered from one of God's creatures? How about this workout? Is this an opportunity for you to get stronger? For you to push yourself? For you to learn what your limits are and then redefine them? Or is this willingly signing up for misery and despair? What about life in the city? Does this uh, mean excitement and people and things to do? Or does this look to you like a congested nightmare? Life in the country. Idyllic peace or kill me now boring? (laughs) Those of you who write will notice that the inferences are switching from example to example. Trying to do what I can to keep you off balance so that you don't think all of it is pulled from my bias, although some of it is. This next one, of course, proof positive. Is this Porsche mechanical art? Or is it ostentatious frivolity? Well, let's talk about your Toyota Corolla. Notice I'm being friendly. I put it in a quite lovely context. Is your ugly, boring Corolla pedestrian? Or is it practical, good enough, and responsible, Pastor Todd? How about this old woman? Is she an old woman? Or is she the wife of your youth? I do have to pause in the midst of my own example and say, yes, she is the wife of your youth. That's the beautiful thing about growing old together. She's always the wife of your youth. What about Jesus? Is he an ancient fairy tale? Or is he the key to changing your mindset so that you get the most out of life? Well, let's see what the text has to say. 1 Peter 4, 1-6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This passage is so good. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Since therefore, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Keeping in mind, Jesus' suffering and Jesus' victory, learn to use his mindset as the key weapon in your quest to really live. I'll say it again. Keeping in mind his suffering and his victory, learn 
to use his mindset as the key weapon in your quest to really live. See, Jesus really suffered, so you can really bank on the fruits of that suffering. I spoke on this last week. Jesus really was victorious in his resurrection, so you can really build your life on it. And what was Jesus' victor's mindset? I think it can be encapsulated almost entirely with his words from the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, he's speaking to his father, not my will, but yours be done. He's suffering in the garden. He knows on the morrow he's going to the cross. He knows what this means for him. He knows he's about to take the whooping of all whoopings. And it's stressing him out, to put it mildly. And so in that garden, in anguish to the point that in one account he's sweating drops of blood, he calls out in agony to his father. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from before me. If there's any way you can deliver me from what's about to happen, please, Lord. And he follows it up with a nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is as good an encapsulation of Jesus' mindset that I've seen in the Scriptures. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see him saying that he only does what he sees the Father doing. We see him constantly in communication with the Father, seeking to know and do the Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus himself, God the Son made flesh, knew that the gospel is ultimately about God. His glory, his fame, his will, his activity, his people, his redemptive work, his future. It's very important for us to note as God's people that in Christ we have been adopted into the future of God. I mean, you could take that one all the way to the bank. In Christ, you've been literally adopted into the future of God. God's future is your future now because of Jesus. That ought to give you peace this week. Maybe that's your hashtag for your sticker. This week, we have them outside along with Sharpies you can steal so that you can jump on a moment like this and write, his future is my future now. And then stick it somewhere where you'll see it all week. I get photos from those of you who send me pictures of it on your water bottle at work. Some of you send them to me on the screen of your computer at work. One of you should stick them to your kid, you know, like on their back. Especially with a pithy statement about parenting. I'll try and come up with something good before First Peter is done. God's future is your future now. So start living like it. How would that inform your life? The stress of your week. If you believed, sat down on the fact that God's future is your future now. You see, friends, the moment you would begin to adopt a God-first mindset is the moment you're really on your way to living. And, it's worth noting, if you're living a God-first mindset, it is impossible to live a me-first mindset. These two don't work at the same time. God first, me first, you're going to have to pick. Isn't that profound? I mean, I could just sit with that for a second. You know, if I was like a 
Catholic priest and we were at a retreat, I said, go walk in the labyrinth for a minute and think about that. God first, me first, that don't coexist. reason, of course, that this is so important is that destroying selfishness is the key to killing sin. I'll say it again. Destroying selfishness is the key to killing sin. Look at verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I'm not the only preacher to make audacious statements. That's crazy Peter. Really? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin because I've suffered and I still sin. This is one of those things where like a first year theology student would be like, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. It contradicts itself. (laughs) Dig a little deeper here in the original language. Here's the intent of this sentence. For whoever willingly accepts suffering has ceased from sinning. To willingly accept suffering has a magic to it. Now there's a difference between how a Christian accepts suffering and how a non-Christian deals with suffering. A Christian accepts suffering and clings to hope through it. This was me this morning on my drive to church. Edinburgh's close, I had to come up Norfolk. I had every light. I said, you're not going to break me, devil. You're not going to make me come to church angry today. Not today. And so I suffered, small s, I get it's a small suffering. I suffered through the interminable red lights. But I held on to my joy because of Jesus. Not because I'm good, because I am bad in and of myself. You're like, yeah, you got a crappy golf swing. I know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so it's not because of me, but it's because of Jesus' greatness and his fame. It's slowly seeping its way into my heart. So it helps me accept suffering and cling to hope anyway. This is where the Christian genius begins to take flight. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Eventually, you get rid of the butt. (laughs) Life is hard and God is good. Look, it may take you half a lifetime to eliminate that little A-N-D. Switch the B-U-T for an A-N-D. Yeah, life is hard and God is good. It's going to be all right. That's the Christian response to suffering, not, I'm going to save myself. This is what most people do in response to suffering. They react and they begin working to try and save themselves. The Christian says, life is hard, and God is good. I'm not going to try to save myself. I'm going to trust God instead. The more you suffer without losing hope, the less grip self has on you, and selfishness is very close to the ultimate root of sin. Y'all feel me? We know this from Scripture. Really? How so? Gee, the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks mighty tasty. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If Adam and Eve had had the mindset of the Logos, second member of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate form, 
the Logos, the Word of God, who in his incarnation was known as Jesus Christ. If Adam and Eve had adopted the mindset of the Logos, they would have looked at that tasty fruit and said, no, thank you. The serpent would have said, why not? It looks good. And Eve, she might have looked on the fruit, as Genesis records it, and seen that it looked tasty and good for giving wisdom. And then she would have said in her heart, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. And how different would the story of the world have looked had our first parents adopted the mindset of the Logos? The only reason I can speak so boldly about them is because their sin is alive in me. I know that I would fare no better. Even as I'm preaching, I'm like, how dare you say that about your first parents? You're not even half the man they were. I know. But the weight of their choice lives in me still. You get a whole new mindset in and because of Jesus, you'll be able to watch as suffering becomes the pathway to freedom in your life. Could have called this sermon Redeeming Suffering. Tell me, fair pastor, how does suffering lead to freedom? Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You think like Jesus and suffer your way joyfully through to selflessness, you will find yourself free from slavery to sin. Note, you will never be free from slavery. You can be a slave to sin, or you can be God's slave. The Bible clearly teaches this. If you want to put it on your sticker or on an eventual t-shirt, you say, we are the servant race. You can no more deny your servantness than you can deny your very existence. And yet most of humanity spend most of their time doing everything they can to ascend God's throne to rule and reign in his place and to make as many people as they can subject to them. This is blasphemy. This is anathema. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Think of Antichrist as some like big demon rampaging at the end of the world when all along the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in the world around us and if we're not careful in our own hearts as well. Got to serve somebody. Even Dylan knew it. Got to serve somebody. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to God. We're the servant race. Chances are you've spent some time as a slave to sin. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is saying to his original audience, you used to do what everyone else does. You used to live the same way everyone else does. And how did everyone else live in these Roman provinces? 60 or 70 years maybe after the death and ascension of Jesus Christ. They lived with wretched, sensual excess as a way of life. Wretched. Wretched. Sensual excess. 
When I did my first pass on this passage, I wrote in my notes, you're going to need a very careful definition for these. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Well, the people in the majority of the culture, in the cities to which Peter was writing, were doing, was they were making the experience of sensuality an end in itself. The sum total. They saw the ultimate expression of human dignity and worth expressed in lawlessness, in the throwing off of restraint. No limits, no restrictions. Total and absolute freedom to to do whatever one wanted, whenever one wanted, with whomever one wanted, for whatever reason one wanted. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? It's, 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 It's freaking scary how familiar it sounds. I mean, I could go on and on and on with statistics, but I was like, I'm not going to have time. I don't want to make this sermon about sexual sin. I just want to point out, this is a very big issue in the audience to whom Peter was writing. And I want to point out that the problem his people were facing is the problem we're facing. Well, why is that? Well, you see, look, God makes Adam and Eve naked in the garden. All right, my son's here. Don't send me any letters. Right? makes them naked in the garden, commands them to procreate, fill the earth and subdue it. The Lord is efficient. It's not wasting any time with clothes. Like, go for it, man. Enjoy the moment. Furthermore, those of you who know anything about physiology or sex know that the Lord God of the universe designed our physiology such that we would enjoy the act of procreation. You're like, he's a good, good father. (laughs) Right? Why would God have done this? Well, because he's good, he's kind, he wants you to have joy. But mostly he wants you to fill the earth and subdue it. Why? Because he wants many, 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 many friends Women and men, billions of them, made in his image and likeness to be in fellowship with him forever. And he's chosen you as his partners in creation. So he's made you to be able to procreate and to love it. We take that, we turn it into a game, we've turned it into an industry. We've turned it into a pastime. We've turned it into a means of enslavement as a mechanism for power. We've turned sex into a commodity, into a way to sell lipstick and jeans. God creates wine to make glad the heart of man. This is recorded and celebrated in the great creation hymn that is Psalm 104. And the term in the Hebrew, make glad, means to intoxicate. I said it one time months ago. 
Intoxication is biblical. It comes out of Psalm 104. I was asked to clarify this next time I came to that in the text, so today is that time. Okay? Yain yesameach levav anosh. Yesameach, to make happy, to make glad, to intoxicate in the Hebrew. This is celebrated in Psalm 104, and furthermore, Jesus, with his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, makes more wine because all the wine is gone. Has anyone ever been to a Jewish or a Polish wedding or an Italian one? Why is the rum always gone? Because it's been done drunk. We drunk the wine, Jesus, it's all gone. Do something! Does he wag his finger and say, you evil people? No. <laughs> he says, bring me the water, and he turns it into wine. More wine. So the party can keep going. Now look. We take biblical intoxication, and we turn it into habitual drunkenness. Silly rabbits. From this we get alcoholism, destitution, spousal abuse, poverty, slavery. We forsake the worship of God and we put things and self on the throne. And this is what leads to all manner of abusive evil as we seek to live life in our name for our glory. Here's the rub. None of it ultimately satisfies. Study addiction. What happens in addiction? We take the pleasure responses that God has built into our physiology to encourage us to procreate, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we turn those pleasure responses into a false god. And we stimulate and stimulate and stimulate and stimulate and stimulate and stimulate and stimulate the nerve centers of our brain until they become, in effect, to put it in layman's terms, calloused, so that regular, God-designed inputs no longer work. And so our glass of wine with our friends becomes a drinking party. Sex with our wife no longer suffices. It becomes an orgy. A good meal with friends isn't enough. It becomes a Roman feast where they tickle your tonsils when you're done so you can puke to eat more. Meanwhile, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. Wait a minute. Are we still living in Rome? Turn these good things God gave us into a false god. And then good things become God things, which is a bad thing. I borrowed that from my friend Mark Driscoll. I didn't even write it. It just came to me, man. The mind is an incredible thing. What happens when your senses get dulled? Well, you have to stimulate them more and more and more and more and more, leading to more dulling, resulting in addiction and despair. What is the closest bedfellow of pornography addiction in North American men? Depression. Pornography addiction is now seen by most experts as equivalent to heroin addiction. dulled ourselves to the point of despair. 
And then thank God Jesus walks into your life and things begin to change. Why? Because you start, and sometimes it's only start, mind you, to find your satisfaction in God himself. Can anyone testify to having ever found any satisfaction in God himself? Somebody help me. Yes, we have. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Sometimes in small measure, right? It's not enough. You're like, I need more. God knows this. This is why he's walking with you for the entirety of your life, and he's not about to stop once you enter into eternity. So don't despair that you don't get all the riches of eternity now. It would probably cause you to disexist. You couldn't handle it. Okay, he's with you. He's going to be with you forever. So take what he gives you now. Know that more is coming and faithfully keep moving forward. You start finding your satisfaction in God himself. What then happens? Your interest in self and in stimulation begins to pale in comparison to the beauty of God to the awesomeness of his will, to the greatness of his creation, which happens to include you. Did y'all hear me? Y'all understand? Is it incredibly freeing and empowering? The beauty of God begins to eclipse your lust for lesser beauty. And eventually, as God's redemption works its way out in your heart, Anytime you see anything beautiful, you see the hand of God. Which increasingly makes it impossible for you to sin against God because that beautiful thing that is inciting a pleasure response in your mind is now surrendered to the will and power of Christ as you've looked upon the beauty of Christ and his beauty, oh, I can preach today, eclipses all their beauties. Whoa, this is heavy theology, and it's so practical. I am preaching as good as last week. Thank you, Jesus. Help me, Lord. Oh, I'm crying, man. You know, and here's the rub. Your normal friends are not happy about this. Why? Because everybody hates the DD. I'll say it again. Everybody hates the designated driver. Everybody hates them. You know it's true if you've ever been one. Been a designated driver at a party? Everyone's trying to get you to drink. Yo, man, it's fine. Come on. Why do drunk people want you to join them? Because your non-drunkenness condemns them. They're unable to recognize it when everyone is three sheets to the wind, but when there's even one designated driver in the midst, they're like, dang it, I'm sinning against God. And they know it. You know it, and I know it. You've seen it in every context like that you've ever been in. I haven't been in many, but I've been in some, and I know that that's the case. Peer pressure is nothing other than sinners trying to get non-sinners to descend to their level. Now, I understand there's no such thing as a non-sinner, but I mean subjectively in that context, the DD is the non-sinner. Everybody hates him. Look at verses 4 and 5. It outlines it. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Whoa. Whoa, I have to speed up a little bit. They're surprised when you do not join them 
in the same flood of debauchery. Hear it in the original language. They are surprised when you do not lodge with them in the same unsaving puddle. Sometimes the Greek is better, almost always. In case you're new to church, the Greek is the original language in which the New Testament was written. That's why I always reference it. You go as close to the source as you can. It's not, they're surprised when you do not lodge with them in the same unsaving puddle. Here's my big takeaway from this. Don't live in things that don't save. Don't live in things that don't save. No, preach good. <laughs> oh, even though your friends will blaspheme you for it. That's what malign you means. They're literally going to blaspheme you because you don't participate. You become the object of blasphemy. Anyone else you know who's object of blasphemy? Well, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Every time someone says, I want to punch them. In Jesus' name. I don't. The Bible calls the fellowship of his sufferings. They blaspheme you like they blasphemed him. Why do people blaspheme you when you don't lodge in the same unsaving puddle? Okay, I'm going to talk judgment now. And then I go to hell in a second. So that's going to be awesome. I don't go, but I go with the tech. Y'all understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Why does everyone hate the DD? Because they feel judged by the DD's non-participation. Boom! They feel judged by your non-participation. Therefore, a word on judgment. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I don't judge you. Neither should you judge me. But the judge exists, and his name is God. It's a very unpopular opinion in popular culture. The judge exists, and his name is God. The reality is, we're made in God's image and likeness. We judge everything all the time. Stake, violence against animals. City, country. Old woman, young woman, Porsche, Corolla. See what I did to you? Everybody judges everything all the time. They just don't want you to judge them when it's inconvenient. And even if you don't judge them, they don't even want you to remind them that there is a judge. But I'm a gospel preacher, so yes, I'm going to go there. This is Revelation chapter 20. Ooh, can't believe I get to read this today. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Next chapter, they go to the New Jerusalem. 
first sermon I ever preached in my life was on this passage at Pioneer Camp when I was 17. It's the great white throne judgment. Two things I want to point out to you. I'm almost done. Books were opened. Death and Hades give up the dead that were in them. Even the sea gives up the dead that were in them. And everyone is judged according to their works. Now, let me say, because I'm trying to be a faithful preacher, the book of Revelation is a vision that John has. It's a dream. Okay, so we're not going to be dogmatic about this. We're going to say it's a dream. Okay, it's an apocalypse. It's a vision. So we're not going to build our life and practice around the details of this, but we are going to let the details of this inform our life and practice. That's Christian moderation, by the way. The books are open and everyone is judged according to their works. Means God's keeping track, he knows, and someday everybody's going to know. Okay, you want a practical theology of righteousness that doesn't involve rules and regulations? Go to Revelation 20. Imagine that scene as we all stand there as the books are read. That's why eternity is so long. Who knows how long it's going to take. What happens as those books are read? Everyone in that crowd realizes what? I'm sunk. There's a recipe for Christian humility. Everyone in that crowd realizes I'm sunk. Everyone in that crowd, including me, realizes they have no hope. Realizes that if the book continues to be read, by the time we get to C-A-N-T-E-L-O-N-T-O-D-D, I'm already on my face. And I imagine that it's when that book is closed that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the book of life will be opened. And then those names will be read. And when they get to C-A-N-T-E-L-O-N-T-O-D-D, that's the point where I do this. Oh, Lord, have mercy! Christ, have mercy! Lord, have mercy! Christ, have mercy! Because my name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Woo! And as they come to cast the evildoers into the lake of fire along with the devil and his angels, like Passover, they pass me by. Because my name is writ in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, there is a judge. And there is a judgment coming. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, my friend, will be saved. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have sent me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Friends, God is real. He is holy. You're a sinner. And Jesus has made a way.
There is a choice that looms before you. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find. To those who knock, it will be open. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. Come to Jesus this morning. Return to Jesus this morning. If you're listening online and this is for you, come to Jesus today. He and he alone can deal with your sin problem. You do not have the resources adequate to the task. Come to Jesus today. Jesus, I need you to save me from my many sins. Please forgive me. Lord, allow your work at the cross to be sufficient for me. I surrender to you now. I give you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me yours forever. Amen! You see, we only need the gospel. Worship team, I forgot that I'm done. You all better come join me. We own, don't miss this though as you walk. We only need the gospel because judgment is real. But we gloss over the fact that judgment is real as we celebrate the beauties of the gospel. So every gospel preacher will preach on hell every once in a while when the text takes you there. Whoa, we need the gospel because judgment is real. Verse 6 this is why, let me get to my passage. This is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel was preached to the friends of the people listening to Peter who had died. And he's reminding them that the gospel was preached to them. And they died because everybody dies, because sin has consequences. And all of us will one day die because sin has been born in the world as a result of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. But thanks be to God, in Jesus Christ, grace has come also, and the Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. Therefore, though we will one day die, we shall live by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, leading us to the final point. Friends, it's this. Everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. To do that, you need to get a new mindset because of Jesus. You need to embrace suffering as the path to freedom. You need to not live like you used to or like everyone else who's worshiping self and experience because judgment is real. But thank God, so is the gospel. So live like you're tasting the first fruits of eternity even now. Free your mind and get the most out of life by following Jesus who is the key. 